Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Satori Shakur. And I see this man, I'm thinking, damn, he look good in that motorized wheelchair. That and more. But before that, I just want to remind you, there is so much bonus content to be found if you go to patreon.com slash risk. If you become a patron of ours for a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever it is, there's various perks and prizes you can get for becoming a patron, and there's lots of bonus content there. Lots of extra stories that you can't find in the free feed. There's ad-free versions of episodes. There's remastered versions of episodes from the first couple of years and all the all-star episodes. So there's a ton of wonderful stuff that you're missing out on if you're not a patron of ours. And it helps us profoundly to keep on doing what we're doing if you do become a patron of ours over there at patreon.com slash risk. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk. Also, as you know, the holidays are always the busiest, craziest time of the year. Stamps.com is very helpful that way because you know, maybe you don't have time to be going to the post office. So use stamps.com instead. They bring all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Then the mailman picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail. You can print postage anytime, any day, it's always open. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we've always loved it. And right now, you can enjoy the stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four week trial plus postage and that digital scale without long term commitments. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Now, here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is tosca behind me now and we are calling this week's episode live from detroit three stories from our very recent show that we did just a couple weeks back in detroit fabulous time such a great venue at the magic bag and such warm audiences there we're so grateful for our fans round about Detroit. We're going to start with Tommy Nugent, who you can find at TommySpeaks.com. He's also got a podcast and a book coming soon, both by the title Heavy Lifting. Here he is now. This is Tommy Nugent with a story we call Youthful Indiscretion. Indiscretion. 
I'm going to suck your dick. Uh, no, she said to me, that's not, this guy's like looking at me like, no, you're really not. Um, so let me back up a little bit. The first time I ever heard that phrase was way younger than I should have probably ever heard that phrase. Um, in fifth grade, I started getting in trouble in school for the very first time. In sixth grade, my parents took me out of Taylor Public Schools and put me into a small Southern Baptist Christian school in hopes of keeping me out of trouble. By seventh grade, I found myself sitting in my parents' Ford Festiva in their driveway with the neighbor girl across the street. Stacy was a year younger than me, but I hung out with her older brother, Bobby. He was two years older than me, so he was kind of like the group I hung in. So even though she was a year younger than me, she felt like a lot younger than that to me. She was just my friend's kind of goofy kid sister. And I guess looking back, I kind of knew that she had a bit of a crush on me or whatever. She was always kind of like trying to get my attention. Well, sitting in the car that day in my parents' garage, she got my attention when she... So I'm... 13, she's 12, and out of the blue, we were just like hanging out listening to the radio. She looked at me and said, I'm going to suck your dick. Now, little Baptist school me was like, what? what? It freaked out by that. I didn't have time to even really process the threat and or promise that that was. <laughs> um, and she wasn't, I mean, so I was this little scrawny kid, and she was like the opposite of scrawny. She was a, a bigger girl. I'm she may have weighed twice what I weighed she is sitting in that car. So it wasn't, I mean, none of this ever occurred to me this would be a possible. So she said that to me. I'm like, what? And then she reached by my little 1981 seventh grade Baptist Park Christian School gym shorts. And, you know, they're high. So she didn't have to go very far. And she slipped her hand right up there. I had only recently discovered touching myself. I had certainly had, never had another hand anywhere near me. <laughs> It was amazing, <laughs> the, that human hand on my stuff. And then it, there wasn't but a couple beats. I barely had to process that feeling when she lowered her head down, took me out of the shorts, and put her mouth on me. Oh, my God. From nothing to hand to mouth in that short a time was mind-blowing. And then in this open garage, there's a door that goes from the garage into the house. And I heard the doorknob turn and the door opened up quickly. And my mom came into the garage to drop some garbage off. Now, Stacy's head like pops up immediately. She popped up. And you know, at first that terror, like, did my mom see this? Mom kind of, just kind of looks at us and then drops the garbage and went back in the house, which told me there was not a way in hell she saw what was going on. A couple years before that, maybe, yeah, yeah, a couple years before that, so I had found my dad's Playboy magazines for the first time. And at that age, they didn't particularly thrill me. It was just kind of like weird, like, what, there's naked women in all these magazines. And I, I think I just kind of like left them out. I didn't even try to hide them. It really didn't occur to me that it was some big deal. And my mom, my very religious mother of an only child and kind of a smothering mother of an only child that was afraid of anything sexual it in life, much less for her little son. Um, when she found I had gotten into these Playboys, she went nuts. And she's yelling at me, and I'm so ashamed of you, and it made no sense to me. Like, what's, I don't get the big deal. And she's like, you're lucky I'm not going to tell your father. And that wasn't really much of a threat for me. I mean, I, I love my dad, but mom was kind of, was the parent who, like, swiped me at birth, right? I mean, she was kind of, kept me to herself, and my dad worked afternoons and was a little bit emotionally unavailable, so I never saw him that much, didn't have much of a bond with him at that point. Wasn't terribly frightened of, I'm going to tell your dad, but just the way mom, like, reacted, I was like, what's going on? 
So these couple years later, when she like looked at us and then went back in the house, I knew there was no way she saw it. I also knew something else that I had become addicted to what had just happened to me because that was amazing. <laughs> so we, you know, skedaddled out of the car that time, but the opportunity arose again soon enough and, and Stacy would come over to the house and I had those, those couple hours, mom was a secretary uh, for a corporation, so between getting home and mom or dad getting home, dad usually on afternoons, I had those two and a half, three hours that no one ever came home. So that became Stacy time. And it was, it was so, I, I was like so unsubtle. I, we went to different schools and I, would, I got home first and I would look out the curtains wondering if she made it to the bus stop yet. And then I would like go out and find something to do in the front yard, like watering their lawn, like a seventh grader cares about watering the lawn. Hey Stacy, hey, hey Tommy, what you doing? I don't know, what you doing? I don't know, wanna come in? Okay, and then we would go through this thing where I would always be like, okay, but listen, that thing we did before is wrong, so we can't do that anymore, okay? We can sit on the couch and watch TV, but no more doing that, because that's wrong. And then we'd sit on the couch, and then I'd kind of like look at her, and then like, you know. <laughs> and then she'd get the hand, she'd be like, I'm gonna suck your dick. No, you're not, and she would, you know, she had enough strength and weight on me that she could kind of decide that that would happen, and she would make that happen. And so, it was every day, and it was stupid stuff. Like that's when I first got into magic was around that time in my life. So I learned how to pick handcuffs with a safety pin. So I was like, hey, come on over, I wanna, I wanna show you something. This is really cool. Here, um, handcuff me to the leg of the couch and I'll pick, and uh, oh, I dropped the pin. Whatever you do, you better not suck my dick right now. So I just terrible, stupid. This, this poor girl. <laughs> She's getting nothing out of this. I mean, except for the fact that she freaking owned me and she kind of knew that. But otherwise, there wasn't like no reciprocal anything. I didn't, I'm seventh grade. So at some point, maybe it occurred to me that, I, okay, I, I'm going to do some things. And she would start like teasing me like, you're a virgin, aren't you? And I'm like, you can't tell by this point. But, and I realized looking back, right, at, at that point in her life to be doing these things, like someone had already opened that door for her and, and she found a way to get attention from guys. And, but at that point of my life, I mean, it was all about like that feeling. And, but she said something about, you know, like, oh, you're a virgin, aren't you? And then it was kind of like, well, maybe I shouldn't be anymore. And, or at least maybe I should touch her back at some point. So... <laughs> We, we took things to the next level one day after school. She came over and, and um, she, we got her clothes off and, and I, I gave her a little kiss on the cheek and I didn't kiss her on the lips yet because I wanted to save my first kiss for someone I was really into. Is that wrong? Anyway, I know, I know, I know. I feel the same way about me. It's fun. I know. <laughs> Wait, is this going on the internet? Shit. Um, so, so we get her clothes. I kiss her there, and then I, I, I kiss her chest, and then I, I, I kiss her belly, and, and then I'm going further down. I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to return the favor. And her technique was better than mine. Um, I, like, I, like, found the, 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 the pubosity, and I, you know, and, and, and I, like, you know, this was the 80s. There was still hair down there. Um, so... I like kiss her twice on the hair, like, was that good for you? And it's just terrible. <laughs> and then so I go back up and I, we're, I'm kind of on top of her and she reaches down and she's touching me and she's, I think maybe touching me to herself and oh, this might be. And, and then it is amazing 
the superhuman powers of hearing that can develop when at four o'clock in the afternoon, two hours before anybody should be home, you hear the tumblers of the lock as a key goes in the front door. <laughs> through the living room, through the dining room, in the family room, to the foyer, to the front door, I heard like chunk, 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 chunk of each little tiny tumbler of the key going in. I'm like, no! It's amazing how fast a 13-year-old boner can vanish in an instant notice. Like, no! And I go running towards the front door and I grab like the pair of pants I had laying there. So it's little scrawny me holding pants in front of myself, running to the front door, trying to hold the door as one of my parents is coming in. And I'm like, I, and as my dad, I say, what? That made no sense that he was there. My dad's opening the door like, what are you doing? I'm like, hold the door, hold the door, hold the door, hold the door. And I'm like, no. And my dad, he pushes through and he's like, what are you doing? And I, I I, I, and, I, and he kind of like looks at me and looks around and then starts heading towards where she was lying on the couch. Now at this point with my grandma's afghan covering herself as my dad walks in and she, he looks at her and goes, I think you'd better leave. And then he goes upstairs to where in his bedroom every day he would take his keys and wallet and set them on the dresser. And, and as he's going up the stairs, I'm like, come on, get, get out of here, get dressed, you got to get out of here. And she's getting dressed and she's heading for the door. She's like, you know, don't tell my parents. I'm not worried about you right now. And um, I know I hate me too. So I, I go running up to the stairs with my dad and I knew it was this cornball cheesy thing, but I, I me somehow saying this, I was like, dad, dad, I'm sorry, but... I get these feelings, and I don't know what that was about. And then my dad goes, what do you mean you get these feelings? You, don't, you can't go through life just doing everything you feel like doing. You know, and my dad was a, a prize money bowler, so he used to, all over the Midwest, he would go in these tournaments and make money bowling. And he's like, you know, I was in Chicago with whatever one of his bowling partners was, and we were playing, you know, doubles, and, and you know, he, he got a prostitute, and he brought her back to the room, and he's there with her, and he looked over at me and said, come on, Tom, you want to join in? Well, I get feelings too, but I said no, and I'm like, what kind of weird bowling sex life are you up to? <laughs> so I joined a bowling league. No, it's not a... I'm like, what? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just please don't tell mom. Please, as much as like it was a non-threat for mom to threaten to tell dad, like, I please, whatever you do, don't tell mom. And he's like, fine, I will not tell your mom. I will not say anything about this, but this better never happen again. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know. So a couple months go by, and I was getting in trouble for something, and I was being a smart ass, and my parents were coming down on me, and my, my mom's yelling. I said something like, no, it's just words. And my dad looks at me and goes, oh, just words, huh? Well, saying words can hurt, can't they? Would you like me to say all the words I could say right now? And I'm just like white ashen with like, I really don't, I really don't. And then, you know, he doesn't and we go, you know, our separate ways. And a couple hours later, he calls me, he says, come on, come on, let me talk to you. We were walking in the bedroom and he shuts the door and I don't know what I'm gonna get yelled at or what this is gonna be and he said, hey, I promised you that day that I wouldn't tell your mom and I shouldn't have threatened you like that in front of her. And I'm sorry. And I promise you, I will never, ever say a word about that again. I shouldn't have done that. And maybe that was, I don't know, the first kind of crack 
into my dad and I kind of finding each other in a way. As even at that age, I appreciated kind of what a stand-up move it was, that he could have just been raining down like more shit upon me for all the shit I was doing. But he, it was, it was a cool, odd, horrible, wonderful moment. And it's, it was really kind of the beginning of maybe us finding each other in a way. Nothing ever came up about it again. Um, a couple years later, my mom switched secretary jobs from business world into the school world. And she was at the junior high that Stacy was going to now. And Stacy became her um, office helper, which I was not comfortable with at all. <laughs> at all. And we're at the dinner table one time, and mom comes home and she's telling me, she's like, Yeah, you know, Stacy's my office helper. And she was telling me, like, she, it's so sweet. She was saying that she tries to think about you before she goes to bed so that way maybe she'll dream that, that you were her boyfriend. And I'm right. And like part of me was like feeling like kind of shitty about the whole thing, but the other part of me was like trying not to look at dad at the dinner table. <laughs> and dad was slick. Dad was smooth. He's just eating his food, kind of looks up, never acknowledges a thing, never says a thing. And I was like, that was like the first time that I kind of relaxed. Like, all right, as long as Stacy keeps this quiet, we could be okay here. <laughs> Life goes on, we go our, 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 our directions. My dad um, becomes one of my best friends, uh, was the best man at my wedding, and we had this great relationship. Mom had, and I had our ups and downs, but um, as life rolled on, you know, I got married, had a couple of kids, who I hope don't have the internet shit. Um, <laughs> and a couple years ago, um, two, a little over two years ago, mom passed away. And we were going through all of her stuff and through all of her years as a school secretary. There were all these notes and pictures and everything. And my, at the time, young teenage children and my dad and I were going through all this stuff in the living room. And my dad looks at me and all this stuff from mom's days as school secretary, picks something up. He goes, hey, Tommy. And he smirks and he just turns over a school picture of Stacy. I felt this red hot flush of embarrassment and anger at 40 years old and I just stood up and walked out of the room really fast and my kids like kind of looked they're like what was that and my dad just shakes his head and puts the picture back down 30 years later a man of his word he never said one goddamn word <laughs> story is going to veer into more serious territory as you know we often like uh, go on a little emotional roller coaster ride in the show so our next story uh, gets a little bit more emotional uh, you can find our next storyteller she actually teaches storytelling to business people for business purposes which is a huge way to improve your communication around the office you can find her at patriciarwheeler.com please welcome to the stage Patricia Wheeler welcome to the emotional portion of the evening <laughs> I think I might be a little taller here we go so when I was nearly 24, uh, my fiancé killed himself. 
I came home from selling fancy shoes to fancy people at the fancy mall in Nashville to find a Hitchcock movie playing on the TV in the living room and some lights were on that indicated that someone had just been there and the cats were circling in front of the closed bathroom door in this super weird way. And I opened the bathroom door and there was Paul hanging from the window by his belt, slumped in between the toilet and the bathtub. And in that moment, my entire life changed. Everything that I had in front of me died with him. And I spent the next year just trying to put one foot in front of the other. I stayed for the next nine months in Nashville. I tried to finish massage therapy school, which I think I kind of did. Um, and during that time in Nashville, I really relied on my community, on my friends. I, I'm from here, and so I had these great people that helped me continue to move forward. I lived out of my car, so I needed any help I could get. And I had countless beds and meals and shoulders to cry on from this amazing community. Uh, my best friend, Kara, she lived in the basement of the house that Paul and I had lived in when he died. And I spent night after night over there with her. I never went back into our house, but down there for some reason felt different. And I spent night after night with her there, sitting on her couch watching just sh totally shitty romantic comedies, which is a really fucked up way to deal with the loss of your fiance, but it, it, it worked, right? And uh, one night we were watching The Notebook, which is especially fucking horrible to watch. And, um, and I was laying there with my head in her lap and she handed me some whiskey and then she handed me some tea because you gotta kind of try to keep it real. And I just said to her, Kara, do you think that he loved me? And she said, yes, more than anything. And I turned to her and I said, then why? Why did he do it? And she didn't have any answer. But during that first year that I was a widow, I also slept around <laughs> a, a lot. And I had some really kind friends who understood that what I needed was really specific, right? I needed sex for escapism. I needed sex because I needed to feel pretty and wanted. And there were plenty of friends that were happy to um, fulfill my needs for me. Uh, I, I had this one friend that I slept with that a good friend of mine was also sleeping with, but we didn't tell her. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and once all three of us were at a party together and he and I went into the bathroom and he pushed me against the sink and lifted up my skirt and we went at it and a few minutes later we went out to the party and back to our friend like nothing had ever happened. Because, you know, sometimes there's this, this sadness that just like gets into your bones and this was bone deep. Uh -huh. Yeah, so that also, there were a lot of men that were, that I didn't know as well as I knew my friends that I slept with. And, and these men, they, they were important in that they were there. 
Um, so when I needed something and I didn't want to have to look any farther, I found some anonymous men to sleep with, or semi-anonymous, I guess. And um, that obviously was a little bit riskier than sleeping with friends, but I had already slept with the entire rhythm section of a band in Nashville. <laughs> so not at the same time, um, unfortunately. <laughs> but one of these men that I didn't really know was this guy that was a regular at the tattoo shop that I was a counter girl at, where I like sold people fancy body jewelry and helped them fill out their uh, slips to their waivers to get tattooed and, and the, his name was Joe and all I knew about Joe I knew two things the first thing was that he really loved bugs <laughs> or at least I assumed that that was true because he had these quarter sized ladybugs tattooed all over his body in different colors and quarters pretty big and there were hundreds of them and I am not one to shame someone based on their tattoos I do have my own name tattooed on my body <laughs> It's an Irish, which maybe makes it better, I don't know. Um, but these ladybugs were kind of weird. And the only other thing that I knew about Joe was that he was Puerto Rican. He was from Kentucky, but his parents were from Puerto Rican, which he let me know very frequently made him Puerto Rican, and that was great. <laughs> so Joe and I, we flirted for a couple of months, and then he finally asked me out. We went back to his house at the end of our date, and I went directly into the bathroom, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I said, okay, Patty. This is gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be okay. You're doing this for a reason. He's gonna help you forget it's just sex. And so then I went back into the living room, which was also the bedroom. <laughs> and, uh, and he poured me a whiskey and we started making out and then immediately our clothes came off and we started fucking. It was that kind of thing where there is no foreplay. There is just clothes on, clothes off, sex. And I learned pretty quickly that I didn't actually really want to be doing this. Um, and that's, I think, a thing that women feel kind of often, uh, that we, we, I was just not into it. And he didn't do anything wrong. He was fine. I just didn't want to be doing it. So I thought, okay, I'll just write it out. And that's when things got weird. So I was laying on my back and he was on top of me and I was thirsty so I said hey Joe I'm thirsty because I knew that there was a glass of water uh, behind me on the nightstand and I thought he would hand me the glass of water but that's not what he did he just stopped thrusting leaned over me grabbed the glass of water took a giant gulp and then mama birded the water into my mouth if you don't know what that means, that means he spit the motherfucking water into my mouth while I was lying on my back with my mouth agape because I couldn't believe what was happening and his dick was inside of me. So I swallowed and didn't know what to say because what do you say when somebody mama birds you water? <laughs> I thought there was no way that anything worse or more fucked up could happen, but I was wrong. So we continued on, and as things were coming to an end, he lifted my leg high above my head and screamed, this is how a Puerto Rican fucks, this is how a Puerto Rican fucks, this is how a Puerto Rican fucks, repeatedly as he came. <laughs> and I didn't laugh. 
I don't know how, but I didn't. But I did think, Joe, you're not my first Puerto Rican. And this is not a universal truth. So finally, he was finished and we went to sleep. And when I woke up in the morning, I was glad that he was still sleeping because I wanted a little bit of alone time. And so I went and I got in the shower and as I was lathering up, the shower curtain opened and Joe got in. And again, this is his house, it's his shower. I didn't think anything could go wrong. It was no big deal. I'm almost done anyway. A few seconds later, I looked down and he was peeing on me. And I said, what the fuck, Joe? And Joe said, it's okay, baby. We're in the shower. For the record, it's never okay to pee on someone without their consent. No matter how naked or in water you might be. So I quickly re-soaped and then washed off. And I got out of the shower and I put my clothes on and I grabbed my shoes and I sat down on the couch and I looked underneath the couch or underneath the table in front of the couch and I saw what used to be my cell phone in pieces because his dog had eaten it at some point in the night. So I just sat there on the couch without my shoes tied feeling totally blank and devastated. So a few days later, my friends Anna and Julie and I were at the Springwater Supper Club, which is Nashville's favorite dive bar, which if you've never been, has a meet and three attached to it. If you've never been to a meet and three, definitely do that. But this meet and three has the best veggie plate in all of Nashville, if you ever get there. So we're at the Springwater and we're sharing this pitcher of cheap beer and I was recalling to them what had happened with Joe a couple nights before and I got to the point about the golden shower and I was laughing so hard that the muscles in my back were tense and tears were streaming down my face and Julie said to me in all seriousness, so Patty, how does a Puerto Rican fuck? (laughs) And Anna was laughing so hard that she had to grab both her stomach and my arm to steady herself. And that night, that night was so special because it taught me that I could laugh again. And so it was in that moment that I decided that I needed to take more responsibility for myself, that I needed to take more responsibility for my healing. And so I moved to Portland, Oregon a few months later where anonymous sex and drinking binge drinking or like a full-time job and so I was only there for a couple months and then I got the opportunities to be a producer on Evil Knievel the rock opera in LA and so I took that and when I got to LA it was fun yeah when I got to LA I um I started going to suicide loss survivor support groups all over LA county and I saw therapists and I really started to take my healing seriously. And now here in Detroit, I am on the board of directors for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and I lead a suicide loss. Thank you. Thank you. I I lead a suicide loss survivor support group every month for people like me. And you know, that year, that first year after Paul died, it was so hard. And I thought maybe that in my pain 
what I needed to do was be excessive, you know, drink too much, eat too much macaroni and cheese from the side of the club, have too much anonymous sex, but that's not really what I needed. I learned truly what I needed was to sit with my pain, that what I needed to get through it was to be one with it. Thank you. I feel a change in the weather, I feel a change in me The days are getting shorter and the birds begin to leave Even me, yes, yes, y'all, who's been so long alone I'm headed home, headed home The nights are getting colder now and the air is getting crisp I first tasted the universe on a night like this A box of wine, an alibi, and the hunger in her eyes In the place where the tree of good and evil still resides Still resides Homecoming Homecoming, homecoming This is Risk This is Josh Ritter behind me now. And we just heard from Patricia Wheeler, who you can find at patriciarwheeler.com. Now, you know, the holidays are here. And if you're like me, you like to send the special people in your life something to let them know you care. I'll let you in on a recent discovery of my own, The Books Company. (laughs) B-O-U-Q-S. Books is short for bouquets. They are now my source for the most amazing flowers and holiday garlands and handcrafted wreaths. Books.com has created an utterly new way to send flowers. Farm fresh, direct to your door. No more 1999 flowers costing 60 bucks. Books offers simple transparent pricing starting at just $40 with free weekday delivery. Book flowers are freshly cut from sustainable, responsible farms. And because they come direct from the farms, books are the freshest flowers you've ever seen. They even have farms located on the side of a volcano. Now brighten somebody's holiday, send them beautiful artisan designed flowers The holiday garlands, handcrafted reefs, they're going to love you for it. And if you order today, you'll get a special 15% off when you enter Risk. Book flowers start at just $34 with your special 15% off code. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com and use the code RISK to save 15%. Books dot com. Also... If you're Dutch and you like to read, I would suggest Beaks, right? Uh, If if all the material in your library is old, you might like a new beak. It's just a thought. Our final story comes to us from, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have her on the show. Satori Shakur 
is an artist, a live performer, a social entrepreneur. She is the executive director of the remarkable show, The Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers in Detroit. If you are anywhere near Detroit, or look them up online, too, at twistedtellers.org. She's also one of the brides of Funkenstein from back in the Parliament Funkadelic era. Holy cow. And she's just a wonderful person all around. Here she is now, Satori Shakur, with a story we call Thank You. Good evening. So it's 12 years ago, November 25th, 2005, and I'm standing in my sister's church watching the lid close on my mother's casket. I'm devastated. I know I'm never going to be the same again. It's the day after Thanksgiving and I can find little to be thankful for. It had only been two weeks before that I held her hand in the hospital and my sister the other when the doctor gave us the news that the ovarian cancer had spread, that there was no hope and it would be cruel to keep her on life support. But my mind froze with the news. I'm not ready to lose my mother yet. She's my mother, my teacher, my friend. I had no concept of life without her in it. I was so angry that I couldn't control the outcome that I lashed out at the doctor and blamed. Is it her insurance? Is it there not enough? Would you be saying this if she were Barbara Bush? And that's when I felt my mother cut her eye at me, scold me back to five years old and said, who am I to tell God that 87 years ain't enough? And then she looked at the doctor and said, well, doctor, I just want to thank you because y'all show was nice to me. Thank you. Two words my mother taught me in childhood and I watched the doctor's face go from failure to success in a heartbeat. Thank you. How deep did she have to dig to elevate his bedside manner over saving her life? <sighs> thank you. Two words my mother taught me in childhood, her legacy. I mean, she would drill it into us. What you say when somebody do something nice for you? Thank you. What you say when somebody give you something? Thank you. Well, I wasn't impressed with the words until I got to the second grade, when it just so happened that one day, Philip Miles, I dropped my pencil, and Philip Miles, who sat across the aisle, picked it up. And when I said, thank you, his face lit up in this big, wide, happy smile. So I dropped my pencil every day after that. <laughs> Just so Philip could pick it up and I could say thank you and I could make the sun come out and shine in his smile. I love the abracadabra of the words, the open sesame of their powers. I would drop a random thank you on somebody just to see what they would do. It was like a science experiment. Then one day, Philip sent me a card, a little note, and it said, I love you, 
Do you love me? Check the box. Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> I checked yes. It was easy to love Philip. He, he picked up my pencil. <laughs> and as the years went on and life got harder, it wasn't as easy to love people for simple reasons anymore. Thank you began to shrink from my life and then it occurred to me if I wanted to have more thank yous in my life, I would have to create the opportunities for them to exist. So it was that fourth call back from Mamma Mia. The British producers and directors and costume designers are sitting behind the table and I didn't get the part. I had to say thank you only to discover two more hit plays were in my immediate future, and had I done Mamma Mia, I would not have had the opportunity to do those. I had to find thank you in betrayal and in the failure of a second marriage and divorce. Thank you knocked me to my knees with gratitude when my son survived the car crash. And the brain injury and the subsequent seizures that followed they were a blessing over his death. And then my mother told my sister and me, go down to the gift shop and get one of them big thank you cards. You know the funny kind. I got a lot of people to thank. And she said, thank them little student nurses who look like they about 12. <laughs> and thank that male nurse when I told him I didn't want him to give me no bath. I might be old, but I still got me some modesty. <laughs> and thank that nurse to come in here at midnight on her, on her break to tell me about her life. And thank the girl to come in here and mop my floor. Tell her, it ain't nothing wrong with hard work. I've been a maid all my life. But go back and get that degree. And we took her home to hospice. And eight days later, she was gone. I mean, people had visited her all through the day and the night, leaving tear-stained love notes. At her funeral, the church was overflowing with people, and all I took was her wig from her modest estate, and I smelled it till all the scent was gone. And I knew that eventually I'd be all right. But there was nothing that could prepare me for the death of my son nine months later. He died from a massive seizure, the result of the brain injury that he suffered in the car crash. And when I kissed him, I was shocked at how cold his skin felt against my lips. And I met my granddaughter for the first time at his funeral, and her mother picked him, her up and showed her his face for the first and the last time. And when they closed his casket, I died. I was a dead woman walking. When I looked at the rest of my life, it looked like a joyless chore to live. Thank you disappeared with God and other childish things. And then one day I'm walking through Macy's, through the men's department, and I saw a mannequin wearing something that he might have worn, and I collapsed. And that's when I knew I needed help, so I went to Renaissance Unity Church, to a grief support group, and I talked, and I listened, and I cried, and I screamed, and I laughed through the stages of grief, denial, depression, anger, acceptance, and finally hope. I wanted to live. I wanted to live for my granddaughter. I wanted to live for my life. But I didn't know who I was or even where to start. But when I crawled back from that numb of hell, I was in menopause. So I didn't really have to worry about where to start. Because <laughs> between the hot flashes and the mood swings, it was clear. 
because I'm standing in Kroger's, I'm in the vegetable aisle. And all of a sudden, my hormones just go out of whack. And I am horny as hell. Now when I say I'm horny, I'm talking about horny like a 15-year-old boy. One thing on my mind, I'm talking about horny like Halle Berry and Monsters Ball on the 4th of July. Because if it was me in that movie, I would have fornicated with Billy Bob Thornton and his racist daddy too. Pete Diddy would have got dead on death row. I'm telling you what I'm So I looked up and I see this man. I'm thinking, damn, he looked good in that motorized wheelchair. Now I'm just about to go over to introduce myself when I see the flash of his wedding ring, so I turn my attention to the zucchini instead. And after that, I start seeing zucchini penises everywhere. It was... I mean, I was surprised. I was even shocked because I thought that when vaginal dryness meets erectile dysfunction, it would be a perfect match. You know, I don't want to, you can't. that I would just coast, have a little fun till I reached the promised land of dried up eggs and freedom from maxi pads. <laughs> I thought I would have an okay boyfriend, an okay life, you know, get matching outfits and get fat on the all-you-can-eat buffet on the cruise. Instead, I'm flashing truckers on I-75 and Trump. <laughs> Nipples to the wind, I'm just... It's not me, y'all. This ain't me. I'm a political junkie. I'm telling you, I pride, I'm an intellectual. I pride myself on keeping up on current events. I didn't realize how lonely and how in need of a man's touch. And when I couldn't take it anymore, I bought some stilettos and I went to Craigslist. Cause Craigslist delivers right now. Urgency. And I spotted an ad that seemed sane to my sensibilities. Good looking, house, car, job, seeks mature lady for drinks, conversation, and a possible relationship. So I set my GPS for Tom's Oyster Bar in Royal Oak. Now I'm not gonna say that my standards were low walking in. Let's just say they were specific. If the man looked halfway decent and had a pulse, we get naked tonight. Now I'm hoping that the man with the sideburns, with the bad boy down at the end of the bar is him. And when I get down there, that man look good to me. Those luscious lips, them bedroom eyes, that big, juicy, Jewish nose. He looked like a Slurpee sitting on a bar stool. And he says, whoa, you're beautiful. You're much more than I expected. And I was hoping to meet a black woman. And I'm like, oh, why? He says, I don't know, something different, exotic. Now, exotic is a racist buzzword for me. <laughs> But it didn't sound racist coming from him. Just sounded honest. So I thought I'd be honest too. And I said, well, I like Jewish men. And I like Italian men that look Jewish. 
Matter of fact, I like anybody with a big schnozzle. And whenever I see a big nose, I'll break out in a Jewish Negro spiritual. I will hold your penis in my hand. Anyway, he laughed. We sat down at the bar and engaged in some stimulating talk. He's telling me about his Russian Jewish family coming over to America and becoming successful business persons. And how he was an, an artist and he, he studied in Italy and now he deals in collectibles and antiques. Now I'm surprised because he's telling me about his, his real name, his real life. And you know, I'm keeping my identity hidden because after all, he is a Craigslist date. <laughs> but I'm paying attention, I'm listening to him, but all the time I just want to kiss all that juicy fruit off his face. I'm a woman I can multitask though. And finally, we just lay our cards on the table. He says, well, why are you here? Why did you meet me? And I told him, just like I told you about my long journey back from grief and loss and my crawling back from the numb of hell and that I was here to have a good old bang up time. <laughs> And he says, well, I, I like sex, too, and I can think of a whole lot of things to do with you, but you look worthy of a relationship to pursue. That's when my red flag started flying. Relationship? No, no, that's a woman trap. That, that, that's a storefront of promises you can't keep. And I wasn't sure whether I wanted a relationship, whether I wanted to love and, and lose again. So when he asked me did I want to go back to his house to see his African art collection, I said, yeah. <laughs> I get to his house, and it's like a whimsical art museum. You know, art all over the walls. He says, go upstairs, look around. And I get upstairs, and I look in his bedroom, and he has all these antique framed concert posters on the wall. And I look at one of them, I said, Parliament Funkadelic, Brides of Funkenstein, Paris, France, that's me. And he says, yeah, that's my favorite group, too. I said, no, no, I sang with Parliament Funkadelic. I'm one of the brides of Funkenstein. I was there. Yeah. He, says, he says, no shit. I said, yeah, that's when I decided to keep my panties up and check this out for a while. <laughs> we went downstairs, and he serenades me on his guitar, and a few days later, we make love, and it was amazing. I just wanted to make his dreams come true. I was, yeah! <laughs> I was in love. The first month, had a bump, worked it out. Second month, there was a wrinkle, ironed that out. Third month, he said, Satori, you're just too much for me. You're too intense, you talk too much, and I've never met anybody that shares all of her feelings. I can't handle a girlfriend right now. I just wanna be complacent. <sighs> that just took the wind out of my sails. My heart just went, ah, my stomach was doing flippy flops, ah. Oh, but I knew he was telling the truth. I knew it. And I thought about what he said. He said I was too much. I'm too much. That was a measure of how far I'd come. I wasn't dead. I wasn't even complacent. I was too much. Grief had taught me how to lose, how to live, how to love, and how to want to live some more again. And I thought of those two words my mother taught me in childhood. Thank you. 
And I said, thank you. And he says, no, I, I, I'm your biggest fan. I want to be your friend. And I said, okay. Well, if you want to be my friend, I'm just letting you know that if I come across as being too much, you have my mother, Annie Lou Magruder, to thank. <laughs> and my son, Noah Abdul Shakur, Ma Abdullah Muhammad Ahmad. Because they are the inspiration for the future I'm living into because I'm going for being way too much. I'm going for, I'm going for being over the top alive. I'm going for kissing the lips off the face of life and everybody in it. Because I'm too much and I'm alive. I'm alive. Thank you. But Granny had a saying. Without humps, there would be no getting over. You pay for what you get and hardly ever get what you pay for. Life's full of ups and downs. You got to find your own high ground. Mother wit is your connection. Use it for your protection. You got to dance to it. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is The Brides of Funkenstein behind me now from 1979. Never by Texas from a cowboy. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my granny said that to me, too. Don't forget to look up the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers at twistedtellers.org. They do shows around Detroit, but they also have... A lot of great stories to check out online. And now I'm going to list where Risk is appearing live next on December 2nd. We are in Phoenix, Arizona. For the first time ever, we'll be at the Valley Bar. So come on out on December 2nd, Phoenix. On December 16th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. December 16th at the Bootleg in L.A., the theme is the holidays, so that'll be a super fun one. On December 19th, we're back in Brooklyn at Littlefield. December 19th, come on out to Littlefield in Brooklyn. On January 20th, we'll be two places at the same time. We will be back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles on January 20th. And on January 20th, we will be in San Francisco. I'll be there at that San Francisco show at the San Francisco Sketch Fest on January 20th. We have Guy Branham, Dana Gould, Biz Ellis, and Marcella Arguello are all going to be there. That's going to be fabulous. On January 26th, on January 26th, we are at Caveat in Manhattan. That's what'll be our first time ever trying out that venue. January 26th at Caveat in Manhattan on the Lower East Side over there. And I think that's about it for live dates. Now, don't forget, you can always look up our storytelling training. This is the perfect time to buy gift certificates at thestorystudio.org. 
You can buy someone a storytelling workshop, a one-on-one session with me over Skype. There's all kinds of different things. You know, There's our video courses that you can take in your own time. There's our corporate workshops that we line up with staffs of businesses, large and small. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Uh, yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Samarkand Desert with the Duchess of Kent by A.E.J. Elliot, O.B.E.? Uh, well, I don't know the beak, sir. Uh, never mind, never mind. Uh, how about 101 Ways to Start a Fight? By? An Irish gentleman whose name eludes me for the moment. Uh, no, well, we haven't got it in stock, sir. Uh, well, not to worry, not to worry. Uh, can you help me with David Copperfield? Ah, yes, Dickens. No. A big one? Uh, no, Edmund Wells. I think you'll find Charles Dickens wrote David Copperfield, sir. No, no, Dickens wrote David Copperfield with two Ps. This is David Copperfield with one P by Edmund Wells. David Copperfield with one P? Yes, I should have said. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Funny, you've got a lot of bukes here. Yes, we do, but we don't have David Copperfield with one P by Edmund Wells. Are you quite sure? Quite. 
not worth just looking? Definitely not. Uh, how about great expectations? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E expectations, also by Edmund Wells. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Edmund Wells. Actually, he's not very popular. Not Nicholas Nickleby? That's K-N-I-C-K-E-R-L-E-S-S? No. Christmas Carol with a K? No. Uh, how about a sale of two titties? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, Yes. Uh, I wonder if you might have a copy of Ronaby Bud. No, as I say, we're right out of Edmund Wells. Uh, no, not Edmund Wells. Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens? Yes. You mean Barnaby Rudge? No, Ronaby Budge by Charles Dickens. That's Dickens with two Ks, the well-known Dutch author. No, well, we don't have Ronaby Budge by Charles Dickens with two Ks, the well-known Dutch author. And perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Carnaby Fudge by Dolls Chickens or Farnborough Sludge by Miles Pickens or even Stickwick Stapers by Farles Wickens with four M's and a silent Q. Why don't you try W.H. Smith's? I did. They sent me here. Did they? Uh, I wonder... Oh, do go on, please. Uh, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Captain Gladys Stout pamphlet and her intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, we don't have that. Funny, we got a lot of bukes. Yeah, well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Uh, well, do you, do no, you no, have... we haven't. No, we haven't. But, but, but... Sorry. No, it's one o'clock now. No, We're closing I, for lunch. I, I I'm saw sorry. it over there. I saw it. What? What? I saw it over there. Olsen's standard buke of British birds. Olsen's standard buke of British birds? Yes. O-L-S-E-N? Yes. B-I-R-D-S? Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Olsen's standard buke of British birds? The one without the gannet. The one without the gannet? They've all got the gannet. It's a standard British bird, the gannet. It's in all the bukes. Well, I don't like them. They wet their nests. All right, I'll remove it. Any other birds you don't like? I don't like the robin. The robin? Right, the robin? There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The nut hatch. Right, the nut hatch, the nut hatch, the nut hatch. Here we are. There you are. No gannets, no robins, no nut hatches. There's your beak. I can't buy that. It's torn. Uh, I wonder if you have... Come on, ask me anything. we got lots of beaks here. There's a beak shop. Uh, how about Biggles combs his hair? No, no, we don't have that one for me. The Gospel According to Charlie Drake? No, 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 try me again. Uh, oh, I know. Uh, Ethel the Aardvark goes quantity surveying. No, 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 no. What, what? Ethel the Aardvark goes quantity surveying. Ethel the Aardvark... <laughs> I've got it! I've seen it somewhere! <laughs> I knew it! Someone, someone, yes! Yes! Here we are, Ethel the Aardvark goes quantity surveying. There's your beak. Now, buy it. I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I don't have a checkbook. I'll take a black one. I haven't got a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There you are. There's your change. There's some money for a taxi on the way home. There's your beak. Wait, now, wait, now, wait, 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 wait. I can't read. You can't read. Right. Sit down. Sit, sit, sit down. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Ethel the Aardvark.